first word of Hebrews chapter 12 is the word therefore. Chapter 12 is the beginning of the end of the book. There's just two more chapters left inside of this book, 12 and 13. And this is the point at which, using the word therefore, this transition, this is the point at which the author moves into a kind of application now because of everything that we've been learning for 11 chapters. Here now I turn my attention to my readers, and we begin to talk about specifically what our lives look like in response to everything that we've learned so far. If you read through the epistles of the New Testament, this is a common move. This happens just about all the time in the epistles. The writer will adjust his readers and deal with issues and then at a certain point sort of turn his attention to us and say, now therefore, because that's the case, this now becomes the case for us. So at this point in the book, this is intended to build on all of the big ideas that we have been dealing with so far. And we'll even see how many of the things that happened at the beginning of the book make their way into chapter 12, these first few verses and further on. And it's intended to be a natural transition from what we have just been reading as well, especially Hebrews chapter 11. So remember that we have been reading a chapter that's entirely devoted to the matter of faith, what it is, a kind of definition of Christian faith, what it looks like inside of our lives. In chapter 11, we kept calling it a kind of portrait gallery, So the author takes a few of the stories of the Old Testament and takes a few moments of those stories and says, now by faith, this is how these people followed God in their circumstance. And all of that is intended to inspire us to go back and read these stories more and learn more of what they mean. All of it's intended to inspire us to figure out, now what does it look like for me and my family and my scenario and my situation to now live by faith, trusting Jesus Christ for everything. So this is the moment where we think, because of all of that, now this is the case for us. Here are some of the big ideas of what we're going to read through this morning. First of all, we're going to read about the role and the power of godly examples. So what do the lives of the enduring, faithful look like? How important are the examples of these lives for us? Are we now ready, as people who live in the line of those who have gone before us, are we now ready to accept that faithfulness to Jesus Christ is more valuable than friendship with the world, more valuable than everything the world can possibly give us on its own terms? Following Jesus is far more valuable than all that. Are we ready to accept that now as followers of Christ? So as we speak about what these good examples are like and how we follow in these footsteps, we also cannot escape the the effects of the lack of examples or the surplus of bad examples. And what happens because of that? Are we ready to deal with those kinds of things as well? So we read about the power of godly examples in faith. And then we learn very quickly in this passage that Ours is a proactive and a courageous faith. We learn this uh, very technical theological formulation in Hebrews chapter 11. People who had faith did stuff. Keep that in mind. They had faith, so they did stuff. So now we are learning what it means for us to do those kinds of things as well. And so here becomes a list of the things now that we need to do as we follow Jesus Christ. 
Guys, this is important. Uh, our faith, our Christian faith, it's not some kind of passive magic that just happens behind the scenes where we accept Christ and we forget about Him and we forget about faith and we die and we go to heaven and everything is great. None of the stories of Hebrews 11 were that story. So the stories of our faith can't be that either. Ours is a proactive and even a courageous faith. And then most importantly, and the author gets to this quickly, we follow Jesus Christ. Every good example of faith and endurance points us to Jesus Christ. As we read about those lives in chapter 11, as we learn about the lives of other people that we know or are getting to know, who lead faithful, enduring lives, what we learn in the end is that all of those lives point me to Jesus, not to them, but to Jesus. And these two little words are critical for us by the time that we are done this morning. Very simple, but powerful for us. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Lay him before your thoughts, your eyes, your heart, your behavior. Consider Jesus. Well, let's start reading Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read the first four verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Keep your eyes on this language of endurance and striving. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us now do this. So these stories of faith that we walk through in Hebrews 11 and the big ideas and themes that we have wrestled with throughout this book, they are now laid on our laps. The author now says, okay, now we've talked about this. Now I'm going to lay this before you. This is now your responsibility to pick up and figure out how you're now going to run this life of faith. So all of this, of this whole book, it's beginning to be put together here for us in these last couple of chapters. So I want to remind us of a couple of those things as we think through this passage today. We go all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. Here is how the writer speaks of Jesus Christ and how God speaks to us and uh, the, the people that we have heard about God from and now Jesus. And here's what he says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we have all of these examples, all of these voices. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the creator of all things, and he is, he is the one to whom all things are going. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. It's hard to find another sort of highly concentrated passage like this. It is so much about the glory and the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus and who he is. We get this magnificent language. And after he accomplished the purification of our sins, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, giving his Holy Spirit to his church, the author says, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus, after enduring the cross and despising the shame, has now been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is important to the writer of Hebrews about Jesus. And we think more about the role of Christ in some of what we've read in these four verses. We move a little bit further ahead in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Again, if you know this book, this is kind of a familiar passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. There's that endurance language again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are yet without sin. Our perfect example, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look what we've been given access to. Why would we ignore that? Why would we not take advantage of what Christ has made possible for us because of his sinless life, that we can draw near to the throne of God, which is the throne of grace, that we may find help and mercy in time of need. So the text says we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. So now we're running a race. It's very easy for us as we read the English we read about running a race and we read the word witness, that we imagine a kind of stadium where everybody is watching us as we run this race. But we've got to kind of be careful with the image the author is drawing. When he says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, the Greek word there is the word that we get our word martyr from. To bear witness to something is not just to watch it, but to bear testimony to it, to be able to speak of it, to be able to explain it or describe it. So as we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, it's not people who are watching us, it's people that we are watching. We're listening to their testimony. We're hearing their stories. We're reading about what they have done. We are learning from them what this life looks like. They're bearing witness to us. They've completed the race. They've died preserving the faith. And now we stand in their place. And now we run this race. So they serve as examples, as motivations for us to live for Christ in whatever context he has put us in. Examples and role models are very powerful things in our lives. Maybe sometimes more powerful than we might realize. Now how many of you, when you kind of hit maybe your mid-20s, you've gotten a little bit older than that, you did something, you said something, and you had that thought where you think, I've become my parents, right? Some version of that's just sort of, it's in us, and it just comes out. The examples that we live by, that we live with, that we listen to, we pay attention to, become very powerful inside of our lives, whether we're paying attention to this or not. 
And so the author of Hebrews reminds us of this because we're surrounded by these kinds of witnesses, by these kinds of examples. Here now is the kind of life that I want you guys leading. So following Jesus Christ, we look to these examples. Now I want to think about it like this for a few minutes. Some of us are blessed with these kinds of examples in our very close circles. Some of us have these kinds of people in our families, in our sibling groups, our, our grandparents, our very close friends. We have these kinds of examples with us, and maybe we've been blessed to grow up with some of those examples. A lot of the kids in this church are blessed to be growing up with those kinds of examples, and we have to pay attention to these things. We have to learn from these things. And we even have the example of our church family. The, the example of spiritual family is such a big deal. What we do here in church is not just a little bit of something different for about an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, then we go about our ways. This, this is something that is infused with the Spirit of God. This is our spiritual family. And we're surrounded by these witnesses. Do we know these stories? Last week, Pastor Brooks actually read part of his grandfather's story and through some of the difficulties that he went through and then later in life was able to tell his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, but I saw God at work there. Do we know those kinds of stories? Are we aware of the times in other people's lives when it just wasn't easy to follow Jesus? What did they do? How did they do it? How did they endure? What mistakes did they make? What did they do that worked well for them? What do other people do when they're just not sure about God? We have this cloud of witnesses around us, people who've walked this kind of path. Many of them have walked this path in much more difficult and trying circumstances than we have. What have they learned about faith in Jesus Christ? Some of us are blessed with those examples in our close circles, and some of us don't have those kinds of examples in our close circles. And so we have the stories of Scripture. We have the stories of our extended spiritual family. We have the opportunity to seek out these examples, to find these people, to get connected to one another. Again, friends, in the spiritual family of God, we absolutely need each other through this life. There are no lone wolves in the Christian faith. So we find these examples with one another. So he talks about the power of examples that we have in our lives so that we are learning. But there is something else that happens inside of this passage. Every one of us is being asked by the author of Hebrews to become these examples for others. Does that make sense? It's not just that I read these lives, hear from these lives, and learn from them, and that my life grows. It's that now the writer of Hebrews is saying, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to become that kind of example for the people inside of your life. Will I live this life so that others will see Jesus Christ? Will I finish this race in such a way that even at my funeral, people will be given an opportunity to think about Jesus Christ? We're being asked to become these examples. So guys, let's not underestimate the need for faithful Christians and for the faithful church of Jesus Christ as examples in our current culture. It is amongst the lives of followers of Jesus Christ that our culture is going to begin to see Christ once again. It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen just because of our history. It's going to happen because of the proactive 
courageous lives of faithful Christians and faithful churches at work in our culture today. As I was going through this this week and kind of preparing the kinds of things that I wanted to talk about, I think we understand how easily my mind went to the shootings that happened just last weekend. El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio, and we could list the rest of this morning how all of these shootings have, have struck us here in the state of Colorado and so many other places. That they just do appear to happen over and over and over again, right? And when these things happen, and especially when it's a politically expedient shooting, right? When these things happen, our culture explodes. And our culture explodes in political blaming and in wrangling. When these things happen, this is an example of just naked evil that reaches the surface of our culture and innocent people die. It's just naked evil, and we respond to it like that. So what happens is that so many of us turn to political blaming and legal blaming, and because our culture is so bad at doing this right now, it leads to even more division and to more hatred. Right? We know this. We feel this. We're bothered by this. I believe that because our culture has been getting rid of the moral and intellectual categories that was given to it by its Christian tradition, it no longer has the ability to actually understand what evil is and how it works. And because of that, we now turn to politicians as saviors and, and legal solutions as saviors instead of to our capital S, Savior. Now, I'm not going to say that the legal conversation is unnecessary. We have to have that conversation. The political conversation, these things need to be healthy and useful and vibrant. But there is one detail that is universal in almost every one of these events that happens that we, we don't talk about that often because you cannot pass a law that fixes the problem of alienated young men. The thread that holds almost every one of these things together is the problem of alienated young men. What's the phrase that's thrown out almost every time this happens? He was a lone wolf. He just showed up out of nowhere. He drove 600 miles with a bunch of guns and started to do this. Who knew? Neighbors didn't know him. Family didn't know him. Mom was surprised. He's a lone wolf. Technically, they're not lone wolves. They are what one author called an alone wolf. What's universal for almost all of these guys is the lack of example in their lives. They don't have close, personal, physical connections with people, and if they do, they're very broken and dysfunctional. And what they lack in local community, they make up for in dysfunctional virtual communities. That makes sense? That's where they're connected, is in very broken, dysfunctional, virtual communities instead of healthy, physical, family, friendship communities. And because they cannot find love or friendship or meaningful work or even religious faith, one author put it like this, and I like it. He said, these guys don't know a pastor because they're not connected to a religious body, a church. Because they can't find things there, they find really bad substitutes in God-replacement ideologies. If you ever read any of these manifestos, it's a God-replacement ideology. And, of course, many of them are just full of violence and hate. The power of bad examples or the lack of examples in our lives. So, guys, to me as a pastor, these things resonate 
These, resonate, these things resonate powerfully for me about the importance of the health and the strength of the family of God, of a local church that sits in a neighborhood and gathers people together and encourages family and walks out of these walls and carries the light of Jesus Christ with us. This is important, what happens inside of these walls. You guys, I keep thinking of it in this way, and maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but this is how it goes through my head. Whether our culture wants it or not, it needs the example of a faithful, enduring, creative, and courageous church. Are you with me? Whether it wants it or not, it absolutely needs it. And it's beginning to strike me as a relationship of tough love. You keep telling me to sit down and be quiet when, in fact, you need me to speak into your life more and more. I love you too much to let you destroy yourself without options, without warning, without the opportunity to get to know Jesus Christ. So the author in chapter 12 moves very quickly from we have this cloud of witnesses to you now are becoming these people. Moves very quickly into a faith that is proactive and enduring. Because we have this these examples of faith around us. In the text, a string of verbs follow. Let us lay aside. Let us run. Looking to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Because we have that, this is now what we do. This language of striving is throughout this passage. It's throughout what we've read even so far this morning. It's very common inside of Scripture when these authors write to you and to me, knowing that sometimes this life is difficult to figure out, and sometimes the culture around us makes it hard to do this, and even the struggles in our own lives make it hard to do this. So they talk about striving and enduring and laying hold of and pressing on. One of the best passages about that is the Apostle Paul, while he's in prison, he writes to the Philippian Christians. In Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this, this, this unified relationship with Christ. I haven't already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus made me his own. He's made me his, so now I want him to be mine. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own. Christ has done all of this. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. I press on. Jesus has done all of this for me, and what I want is more of him. So he says, let us lay aside everything that hinders us, the sin that slows us down. You've got to start paying attention to this Christian, he writes. And you need to start getting rid of it. Absolutely anything that we can identify that is sin or rebellion in our lives, anything that is a hindrance between us and our relationship with Jesus Christ, the author says, guys, it's got to go. We have to lay, lay those things aside. They're just weights. We've tied us down in our relationship with Christ. We're supposed to be running a race. We've weighed ourselves down with sin, with hindrance, with distraction. And again, the Apostle Paul speaks this way often as well. 
And he'll use this language of, we need to put this stuff to death. We need to take it off like an old garment because we've, we're putting now in Christ, we're putting on a brand new garment. It's a new life. It's a different set of priorities. It's a different way of thinking and relating and working. We're putting on a new life. One of the places where the Apostle Paul does this powerfully is in Colossians chapter 3. A little snippet, Colossians 3 verse 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and on he goes with the things that we need to get rid of. So guys, here's one of these things the author lays in your lap, the author lays in my lap. It is time now to start paying attention to those things in my life that actually hinder my relationship with Jesus Christ. I need to pray about it. I need to spend time with others that I can trust about these issues. It takes time. It takes attention. It takes confession and repentance. It takes time in God's Word and with the Spirit of God. Pay attention to it, the author says. It's powerful stuff. Let us lay that aside. And he says, so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Whatever race God has given you, He has empowered you to run. So now let us run it. Let's do it with endurance. Let's make it all the way to the end of the tape. This language is in chapter 11 as well, right? So as we run with endurance, um, as many of you know, the uh, last thing on earth that I am is a marathon runner. If I were to sprint from here to that back wall, I might faint. <laughs> if you want to set the goal of running a marathon, of running a long race, you know that that's just going to require a lot of time, a lot of training, a lot of attention. You need to train your mind, your body. You need to train your habits so that you can be ready for that. If you're a marathon runner and you want to do it better, you're even asking those same questions. What else do I need to do? So if you want to set that kind of goal to run that kind of race with endurance, you're starting to ask questions like, well, what do I need to do today? How do I change my habits today? Do I actually need to start running tonight? Can I wait until tomorrow morning? How do I change my diet? How do I start thinking? You're right. We're making these very practical long-term decisions now about where we're headed. It's very similar with our walk with Christ. If I want a robust and enduring walk with Jesus Christ, if I want to be able to resonate with what I just heard the Apostle Paul say, I've laid everything else aside, and what I want more than anything else is this high calling that God has given me in Christ Jesus. Do you want to resonate with that? I do. If I want a robust and enduring walk with Jesus Christ, what do I do today? What do I change today? What habits do I get rid of? What habits do I start building in my life now? If I want, as Scripture speaks of this, this, this constant sense of the presence of God through prayer, Paul says more than once, I need you guys praying continuously. If I want that kind of conversation with God in my life and sense of His manifest presence, what do I do today to get there? I've got to start changing things. I've got to start paying attention to certain things in my life. If I want to be bold and wise when I bear witness to Jesus Christ, to those around me, how do I get there? What do I do today? What decisions do I make? We read from Colossians 3, verse 5. 
I encourage you to go back and read that entire chapter. A little bit later in that section, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13, Paul puts it like this. He had just said, now put to death all of this stuff. And now he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want you to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. And on the story goes. So here we are. Here's a list of things now for me as a follower of Jesus Christ to begin paying attention to. To realize that this kind of list, this now becomes the priority for my character development, for my relationships with those who are closest to me who test my patience more often than not, right? So these kinds of things become our values, the lenses through which we process our relationships and our priorities and all that we do. Because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and every sin that slows us down and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But before we begin to think that the Christian life is nothing but a list of do's and don'ts, it's not just a list of, now you have to do all these things and not do those things and then Jesus accepts you. Before we think that that's all the Christian faith is, the author moves to the most important thing and that is looking to Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. It is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because in the end, our example, our empowerment, our faith is Jesus Christ. Guys, our faith, what it means for us to have faith, and again, it's one of these words that in Christian circles sometimes we can use so often we, we lose its meaning, which is why we spent so much time on that going through Hebrews chapter 11. But remember, our faith is not in our abilities. Faith is trust. It's confidence in. I'm not putting trust in, in Phil's abilities to do all of this. We don't have faith in our faith. That's not how it works. Our trust is finally and completely and ultimately in Jesus Christ alone. Guys, the strength of our faith is not in how sincere we can be about it. The strength of our faith is not how long I can muster my own willpower about it. The strength of our faith is in the object of our faith. And when we get to know who Jesus is, we're learning that we can lay everything in our lives in Jesus Christ. The strength of our faith is in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. So the text says that Jesus is both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It's a beautiful phrase. The NIV says this. I've always remembered this as a kid. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who goes ahead of us. He's the one who blazes the trail. He is the one who prepares the camp at the end of the road. He's the pioneer of my faith. He's the author of it, the founder of it. He's the perfecter of my faith. As the founder of my faith, of our faith, Jesus is the one who sets up the conditions for this life. He is the one who leads the way ahead of us. The same word for founder is used for author in Acts chapter 3, where Jesus is called the author of life. 
I did not author my own life, either biologically or spiritually. Jesus did. I can't do that for me. Only he can. He is the author of my life. And in the same way, he is the author of my faith. He is the one who begins it, who founds it, who sets the stage for it in our lives. Guys, our lives of faith, everything that we trusted in Jesus Christ is only possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He founds our faith, and he finishes it. He is the perfecter of our faith. Any maturity, any growth in Christ-likeness that happens in the lives of followers of Jesus Christ happens by the empowerment of the presence of God. He's given us his Holy Spirit to bear witness to him and to empower his church and to lead us to Christ-likeness, to bear witness to Jesus. So every step forward is actually a matter of my surrender. It's a matter of my pursuing the presence of God so that he can do in me what only he can do. He is the perfecter of my faith. We pursue him, and he preserves us to the end. Guys, Jesus begins and completes our faith. We just join in. We join in. We become a part of what the kingdom of God is doing in this world. If you can imagine what's possible with, if the kingdom of God were at work here, what would it be like? And part of the answer to that question is, I might actually be able to be a part of that, to join in with what Christ is up to, with what God is doing. And so by extension, and I think this is important, we even talked about this in staff a little bit this week. We are not responsible for beginning or finishing the faith of anyone else. I cannot, as much as I want to sometimes, I cannot give you faith in Jesus Christ. I can stand up here and sweat and spit and cry and scream and plea and tell jokes and on and on and on and on it goes. I can't give you faith. Jesus is the author of faith. I can't carry you by the hand to death and make sure you make it into glory. It is Jesus who does that. So what we do in a place like this is we set an environment. We gather together so that all of us can join in and worship God and hear his word and join in fellowship and prayer so that we are experiencing Jesus Christ. And parents, this is what it's like inside of your homes as well. You can't give your kids faith. You can't finish their faith. But you can create an environment where they join in, where they're invited in so that Jesus can begin their faith and perfect their faith so that they can walk the path that we are walking as well. Something else the author finds so important in this passage. Looking at Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We actually heard it from the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ is the victory of our faith. The cross is our victory. The cross looked like it was going to be a tragedy. It looked to the disciples, many of them, for a period of time like it was the end of what they had hoped, but it turns out that the cross is our victory. Our faith is in the victory. Our faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is our victory. So we look to Jesus. 
And this is just beautiful. This is just absolutely beautiful. Who for the joy that was set before him endured everything that came with the cross. Jesus saw something ahead of him that was of more importance to him than what he was going to have to endure in order to get there. The writer, as he puts this here in Hebrews chapter 12, in the context of Jesus Christ and the cross, is actually saying something that he has already said several times in Hebrews chapter 11. This is a very familiar theme if you've just read through Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham left his homeland and went to a land that he did not know because his eyes were on a city whose builder and maker was God. He saw something else that was of more importance to him, of more value to him than anything else he was going to have to endure in order to get there. And so he got there, right? Moses considered reproach for the sake of Christ as of more value than all the treasures of the richest nation on earth. No matter what Egypt can give me, being persecuted for the sake of Christ is of more importance to me than that. And the chapter goes on to list names quickly and to speak of people whose names we do not have. And some of them actually died not receiving the promises, but they died in faith because they saw, the text says, what God was giving them instead of what they had to endure. So by faith they live this way. And they find the supreme value of life in Jesus Christ above everything else. And so now it says, for the joy that was set before him. You see, what we see is the same thing that Jesus sees. This intimate and profound relationship that he now has with every one of his children. You guys, the day is coming. The day is coming. When it won't just be that we see him face to face, he will look at you and he will welcome you as his child for all of eternity. The joy that was set before him is the same joy that is set before us. What Christ has done for us, friends, is beyond what we are able to comprehend or express. The text says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This concept shows up a couple of times at least throughout the rest of the book. And we mention this, that Jesus is seated at this right hand of the throne of God. It's a sign of this job being done. He's completed it. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We don't add to it. We don't make sure that it works in the end. <laughs> he has completed it, and he has sat down. It's a symbol of the job being done. It's a symbol of his absolute and complete power and reign over all of creation and all of human history. Jesus endured the pain and the shame of the cross. He rose from the dead and is now an intimate and power-filled relationship with his children, and he will be united with all of us in his eternal kingdom, and he will reign forevermore. This is the Jesus that we're looking to. This is the Jesus that we are told, now consider him, who he is and all that he has done. At some point, friends, it all just kind of boils down to please, please, look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Pay attention to him. He goes on to say this, in fact, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
So he says, now the reason that we put our minds on Jesus is to both take stock of what he has done, to learn what he has done, to let these things become a part of who we are, but to then live a life of endurance in response so that you may not grow weary in following Jesus. He endured hostility from sinners. Am I ready to endure hostility from sinners as a faithful witness of Jesus Christ? We have endured some, but there is more to endure. We've even learned that the original readers of Hebrews chapter 11, they've endured a lot. Many of them have actually lost their property. They've had that taken away from them. We learn that many of them have actually been thrown into prison for their faith. There is more to endure, the writer says. John chapter 16, verse 33 records some of the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And here's part of what Jesus says in John 16. I've said these things to you, all this instruction, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There's some important language there. I've taught you all of these things so that in me you may have peace. It is in Jesus Christ that we find peace. He says, look, guys, I know. You're going to watch this happen to me. In this world, there's going to be tribulation. But I like this. It's a certain kind of past tense. I've already overcome all of it. The battle is already won. Now find me and find peace no matter what you walk through. Consider Jesus. Be aware that Christians will need to endure, the writer says. We will need to decide that this is more important to us than the riches of the world, than the values of the world. And guys, there are very good ways to be practical about this, to learn how to keep Jesus in our minds before our thoughts. Keep these images of the first four verses, especially those first two that we walked through, And even those first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, a lot of this is actually fairly easy to memorize. If you're not a memorizer, it's just a couple of verses. In fact, that's your homework for the week. There might be a test next week. We'll see what happens, right? Keep these images before your eyes. Learn how to draw these things back before you. Learn how to speak these things out loud. Learn how to pray through these things, to pull these things into your heart and let them become a part of you. If you haven't read a gospel in a long time, just read a gospel and learn the stories of Jesus Christ all over again. Consider him and all that he's done and all that he is. It will reset you. It can act as a refuge for you. It becomes a firm footing for us through this world. The more we know Jesus, the closer we are to him. We become able to endure. It becomes this resetting, this refuge, and and I believe over time it actually becomes a fire inside of us. It's not just something that I have found a good place to be in a strength and encouragement, but I want you to have this same place. I want you too to be in Jesus. I was going to finish this sermon a different way, and then I had a really interesting conversation this week. I want to fold you guys in on that conversation, and it starts actually a while ago. So buckle in. This is going to take a little while. It's not going to take a little while. So Matt and I sometimes will talk about, and a few of us have conversations like this every now and then, 
about what it means for Christians to be committed to Jesus Christ, to maybe even be willing to give up for Christ, to sacrifice for Christ, to maybe even give our lives for Christ, and, and asking and wrestling with the question, are we actually this committed to the most important thing about us? He said something interesting. He said, you know, I can stand in front of a room full of Marines and I can motivate them to give their lives for their country. How do we do that for Christians to motivate them to even give their lives for Jesus Christ? That's a really good question. So we've talked about that from time to time. And then just this week, I had a lunch with a young man who started coming to church and he's a sergeant stationed at Fort Carson. He's in the religion services office. Um, he essentially works as a chaplain's assistant. We started having the same conversation. What about Christians and their commitment? Are we ready to walk through this life enduring and faithful to Jesus Christ, maybe even ready to give all of it up? So I, I tell him this story, and I said, I've had this conversation before, and this young sergeant, the very next thing he said, floored me. He said, Pastor Phil, when those Marines go overseas and they're ready to sacrifice their lives, it's because they have seen their homeland. It's because they know what it means to live in this country, in this life, with these freedoms and with these liberties. And they know what they're fighting for. They know what they're ready to die for. They've seen their homeland. Christian, have you seen your homeland? Do you know what you're living for? Do you know what we're fighting for? Are you ready to see the supreme value of being in Jesus Christ and walking through this world faithful to Him. Let's pray.